Episode 443 of Hippie Witch, Magic for a New Age. My name is Joanna DeVoe, and I am the groovy creatrix behind Kick-Ass Witch, putting the K in magic, and Hippie Witch, the show you are listening to right now. I also have a free ebook by that name, Hippie Witch, Peace, Love, and all that good shit, and you can pick up a copy of that at www.joannadevoe.com or Back on the description page for this episode, back on Blog Talk Radio, where you will also find a link to Carolyn Elliott. I know so many of you love Carolyn Elliott already, so this will be really fun for you. I'm excited for those of you who have never met or heard of Carolyn Elliott because this will be extra fun for you. There's an amazing conversation coming up with Carolyn, so stay tuned for that, and Happy New Year! Happy New Year on March 21st. What? (laughs) Today is Saturn's Day. I'm still celebrating Ostara, so I see this as Ostara Weekend. Saturday, I'm a person who moves through the wheel of the year in periods of time. So I'll celebrate a Sabbat, a holiday. It depends on the holiday. It depends on the year. But I really see them as a launching pad for a new like six-week period before the wheel turns again. And I see the period of spring, spring. Spring. We are now in spring. Those of us in the Northern Hemisphere, spring transition just ended, and we are now officially with with Ostara, with the spring equinox, finding ourselves in the season of spring. And I see this as a time, as many of you probably do, for planting seeds. That is literal seeds. Like if you want to grow some food or some pretty flowers, now is probably the time to do that, to plant some seeds for that. But I'm thinking more in terms of a psycho-spiritual experience as I personally travel around the wheel of the year. So I start thinking, what are the metaphorical seeds that I want to plant and then nurture through to fruition as the year goes along? So that's in part why I'm saying Happy New Year. I think many of us maybe could use a restart right now as we are entering into... A temporary, but we don't know how temporary, new way of life. It's a new way of life. And so I think it's a good time of renewal and to maybe set some new patterns and habits and rituals and routines in place to support yourself, maybe your family, if you all are on lockdown, if you're working from home, things like that, if you're staying home to self-quarantine, It could be an interesting time to think of this as a new year for a new world, a new way of being until further notice. I myself, I like to move in terms of 12-week years. I've talked a lot about that here. 
especially as it pertains to working with Saturn as a guide. It was Saturn, really, that I felt led me to this book called The 12-Week Year that has really become a way of life for me. And just briefly, I'll repeat for those who who want a refresher and those who have never heard of The 12-Week Year what it is. Basically, you set your New Year resolutions or goals for 12 weeks instead of 12 months, And you treat those 12 weeks like it's an entire year. And what many of us who practice this way, our our goals, our dreams, practice working toward them, setting goals in these 12-month increments, you may already naturally just do this quarterly, depending on the kind of business you're in or if you go to school or something like that. It's basically taking your year quarterly, but it's a mindset to look at it as each week is a month because it really forces you to stay really in tune with the goals that you set, to stay like tuned into those goals for the entire length of this year, <laughs> this 12-week year. And it encourages you to track process goals. So you have you know, one, two, three, I think they don't recommend more than five goals for the entire 12-week year. But then when they ask you to track is the process goals. You're encouraged to track and measure the processes instead of focusing on the outcome. So it's The outcome would be, let's say you pick three goals for your 12-week year. Then you break it down into the processes, the routines, the habits, the tasks that need to get done and be put in place in order to achieve those goals. And so every week, you have a little reflection time where you kind of grade yourself. You can do a percentage, like I achieved 75% of this process goal. So if it is to get in shape, if that's your overall goal, your process, the process would be, I'm going to work out five days a week. So maybe you only work out four days a week. So you give yourself a little grade based on that. And so then you can see as the weeks go on, like, wow, I consistently only get a 30% on this area of my life. I need to pump it up if I'm going to reach the greater goal. And I love it. I think it's really useful. However, the first one that I started for 2020, I got knocked off my game. I got knocked off my game. I've talked about this so much here. I don't really want to go into it again, but the kid and I got very, very ill with some kind of flu-like thing that I do not think was the coronavirus. People keep asking me that. I don't think it was, but it was serious. It was intense. It took us out. And then from there, like right as we were feeling better, all this coronavirus stuff started and life got very chaotic and strange. And now he's here all the time. And I felt all of my routines kind of got exploded. (laughs) We got really off track with our usual way of life. And I had one more week to go on this first 12-week year. And I was like, it's just, it's not happening. It's not happening. And guess what? I am the authority on my life and I'm going to start over. I'm just going to start over. I'm going to start a new 12-week year 
I'm going to move these goals that did not get achieved over to this 12-week year and start fresh tomorrow, Sunday. And I'm going to use, I think, Saturn's day. Speaking of Saturn, is a great day to work on your health, you know, to do some grooming tasks, to organize your house, to organize your finances, which makes it a great time too to check in with your process goals for the week and to kind of plan what you're going to do for the week ahead. I find Saturn's Day, Saturday, Saturn's Day, to be the perfect time for this. So that's what I did this morning when I woke up. I got all excited about my new 12-week year and set some new goals and I'm doing some organizing. And I'm excited to get back on track with a new schedule, a new schedule. I always get up at five o'clock in the morning or I used to. (laughs) And now the kid is sleeping in and I'm like, you know what? Sleep might be good now, especially since we're supposed to be taking extra good care of our health So I need new routines for waking up later and staying up just a little bit later. We've been staying up about an hour later than we usually do, and I'm okay with that because we can, and what the heck. This is a very strange, unusual time. So I'm going to be working with some new routines so I can keep running my business and so I can keep working toward my dream and my goals and have a sense of routine. The thing I love about Saturn is the structure of time, the structure of doing something like a 12-week year. I really find that it creates more freedom and facilitates creativity and energy when I have good structures in place. And this is something that I found to be true as someone who works from home and spends a lot of time at home, which is again, why I wanted to share this with you in case you are new to being home all the time and you're starting to feel a little strange (laughs) and like the days are, are blurring together and you're wearing the same sweatpants day after day. Find a new routine for yourself that serves this new way of life and maybe just see it as an adventure that you get to shape at will. Speaking of adventure, I also want to say something about what's going on right now in terms of, I don't know what it's like where you are, but I think most of the world is on lockdown or going on lockdown. What that means where I live is No big gatherings, no movie theaters, no getting your hair cut. You can go to the grocery store, you can get gas, you can go to the doctor if you need to, but only essential things and, you know, this whole stay six feet away from everybody business makes going to the grocery store often not that appealing. And so there's a really fun little trick that the kid and I have found. I think I might have mentioned it here last time when I talked about, did I... Did I talk about that here? I feel like I did. I've been talking about it a lot, so I'm not sure if I mentioned it on the podcast about going to little local Asian markets, like those little mom and pop shops. And we hadn't been in this to the store, I think, in five days. And I wanted to go out and stock up on supplies and and just do something for the kid and I to, you know, refresh our groceries and feel like we We have a good stash. We have a good stash should something go wrong and the grocery stores close and whatnot. So what we did is we took a tour of the neighborhood. We have an Indian market, an Armenian market, a Mexican market, 
a bigger Italian market. Our Italian market is fancy. So we ended with the Italian market and we got such cool food. And I'm sharing this tip with you because these places are not packed. They're little, they're very, very small, but they're extremely well stocked. They don't have toilet paper, but they have everything else, a lot of fresh produce. It's not organic in most cases, unfortunately. But but we but we do what we can. We do what we can. We got some we got some produce and then we got a lot of canned goods and things like that. And it was great because we avoided the crowds. I think we did all four stores in the time it would have take us taken us to find a parking lot at a major grocery store right now or find a parking spot. Certainly at Costco. <laughs> we got through all four stores and home before we ever would have even found a parking spot at Costco. And people are very happy to see you when you come in because, again, it's like a little mom and pop shop. And the fun thing is, should we actually find ourselves in a situation where groceries, for some strange reason, aren't available or hard to come by, the kid and I will have cool, fun, interesting, weird things to eat that are not just your basic beans and rice. And I'm very, very excited about this giant can. It says Athena across the top. You know, you you know, I love Athena, right? She's my girl. <laughs> and I couldn't resist a giant can that said Athena across the front, but it's a can of stuffed grape leaves, which I love. I've learned to love stuffed grape leaves living in Glendale, where we have a lot of Greek and Armenian restaurants here. I don't know what canned stuffed grape leaves are going to taste like, but if we are reduced to having to use canned food and boxed food and pantry items like that, I'm going to be really, really excited for this. And we also got two little cans of baba ganoush to dip them in. (laughs) So I'm very excited about that. And the kid is very excited about pickled jalapenos that I think we found at the Mexican market. (laughs) So interesting foods. We also bought filleted anchovies and I don't eat anchovies. Anchovies and sardines are supposed to be two of the most nutrient dense health foods we are supposed to be eating this food those of us that are health nuts that are that are trying to eat all the nutrient dense foods but when I buy them they go bad in the cupboard because I cannot bring myself to eat them I think they're pretty gross (laughs) but at the Italian market at the fancy Italian market we got They looked really cool. They were marinated and they were the heads and tails and bones and all that were cut off. They looked very palatable to me. So I got that. We got other weird stuff. Go go and search. Go support your local markets. Avoid the crowds and find some cool new things that you've never had before. I think this whole experience is... You can look at it as an adventure. Yes, it's dangerous. Yes, people are stressed out and scared. But I think taking the mindset of it being an adventure is a good way to look at it. It's unprecedented. We've never experienced anything like this in the Western world anyway in our lifetimes. And so I just think it's an an opportunity. It's an opportunity to experience a different way of life before things go back to some semblance of normalcy. We'll, we'll see how long it takes and what the new normal is going to be. I also want to say that something that I've been thinking a lot about is are the stories that we tell ourselves. And I was telling a story about a disempowering story about 
how I was worried about how am I going to pay my bills? Because what I do with Hippie Witch is a luxury. It's not a necessity. And I kept saying this to like my family and my friends, you know, yeah, I don't know how this is going to turn out for me because this is a luxury what I create. It's not a necessity. And I have noticed a few patrons jumping ship for my Patreon, which was really like making me nervous and think more about that. And I heard myself say it again to my mom. I had repeated it a couple times to my mom. And I, as it was coming out of my mouth, I just made a little promise to myself. I'm not going to say that anymore. I'm going to create a new story. I'm going to create a new story about this as a content creator, as a podcaster, as a community leader. I try to gather community together and inspire people to create the kick-ass life of their dreams. What is the story I'm going to tell? And here it is. Maybe for some people... Maybe some people need what what I do. Maybe for some people, it is a necessity. Maybe some people need a certain buoyancy and lightness of being to see themselves through these weird times, you know, somebody who's silly and hopefully occasionally inspiring. (laughs) Maybe some people need to be reminded of their spiritual and magical practices at this time and... I think the greatest thing that I've been able to provide through Hippie Witch is really facilitated by you all. It's the community, and specifically right now, the way that's showing up most often is over on Discord for for Patreon. So I'm going to thank all patrons, anybody who has ever supported the show. If you had to jump ship, no hard feelings. I totally understand we're all in this together and we're having this experience. I'm going to be thinking about new ways to create free content for people and try to punch up the newsletter. I'll be sending out a witch list this weekend of entertaining things you can do on the internet. There's one new patron a return patron that I want to thank today, and that is Ashley Sowers. Welcome back, Ashley. Thank you so much for supporting the show. And just in general, I think taking a a community spirit with us forward is going to be so, so helpful. I see a lot of that showing up with people that are sharing resources in real life, like sharing toilet paper, sharing canned goods, checking on their neighbors. I see a lot of threads on Twitter going on, supporting artists and creators and saying like, hey, show us your Patreon account or show us your GoFundMe account and people pitching in to make sure that we can all sustain ourselves during this time. So that's the story I'm telling. And I'm also really focused on looking for looking for the helpers. That came up during our speaking of community, the the Zoom meetup. I don't know how many of you showed up for that, but we did a live Zoom town hall, a witchy town hall. And I think it was Molly that brought up that Mr. Rogers quote about look for the helpers. And I think that that's something that we as a community can do. We can amplify the voices that are helping us navigate this time with a positive attitude, feeling empowered, giving us something productive to do, a way to be of service, or just keeping things lighthearted and inspiring so that we feel 
good about ourselves and our lives and able to get out of bed in the morning and get dressed and face another day, I think we should amplify those voices and spread those messages because, you know, we talk about right now, there's a doctor, I'll find, I'll find this, I'll find this interview and I'll put it in the show notes. There's a doctor I think he's a psychologist, Judson Brewer. He he's been on a few of my favorite podcasts. He was on Lewis Howe's show. He did a really great one on how to how to keep anxiety away during these times. How to manage anxiety. How to keep anxiety from going viral. And this is something I've talked about before, and I've I think a lot about, and of course I'm thinking about at this time, and that is like social contagion and mental contagion. And he was using those terms and he was talking about the social virus that is anxiety and how contagious that is and how we pass that on to each other. And he was explaining how people will go into a grocery store and worry that someone's going to sneeze on them, but they won't think twice about going onto social media and how (laughs) all kinds of people are metaphorically sneezing on them and passing on their anxiety and how super duper contagious this is. And he had some great tips. That's why I'll link to the video. It's not that long too. I'll I'll go dig up the link and share that with you. But it was really interesting to me because he was talking about something I was already thinking about, how Particularly in in the witchy community, we focus a lot on shadow work and we talk about how like fear is a liar and things like this, but fear is actually a call to action. A fear is there to save your life. (laughs) A fear is there, not a fear, but just fear in general is there to protect you. It's just a problem when it goes astray, when it goes too far and all these weird stories we tell ourselves and and the contagion of social anxiety that we pass on to each other and fear of the unknown and things like that. And so I just wanted to be like, this is a time to receive the messages of fear as a call to action, but not to stay in fear. Like fear has a purpose. Fear shows you, oh, something's wrong. You need to do something about this. Worry is not productive. It feels productive, but worry, you know, they say like worry is praying for what you don't want. It's getting into alignment with your fear and then staying there and amplifying it and creating more of it. It's, it is, I guess, productive in that it creates more things to worry about. Worry creates worry. Worry begets worry. But if you can look at fear as a call to action, you can get very calm and say like, you know, what am I afraid of? What is the message in this? And what do I need to do now to protect myself? And and this doctor had a really great tip about turning to social media or sitting on social media all day long. He said, before you go on social media, before you go on the internet, like looking for trouble, <laughs> ask yourself Why? Ask yourself what you need. Like, what do you need right now? Do you need a comforting message? Do you need the news? Do you need information? Do you need to feel 
tuned in to what's happening or are you just on some sort of addiction cycle where you're checking in over and 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 over again endlessly because you're addicted and they've got you and you're sucked in. Like, just take one second to pause. If you need information, he was saying, I think, go to the WHO, the World Health Organization's website, find a source you trust and go directly to them instead of getting a bunch of misinformation and and this socially contagious anxiety that people are passing on uh, passing on to each other. Not, not, I don't think people are doing it on purpose. That's the whole point is it's subconscious. And so we can get locked into these patterns pretty quickly because we're not even aware that it's happening to us. And that's another thing I've really had on my mind during this time too, is like, we are witches. We know this shit. It's time now to rely on our spirituality it's time now to focus on these psycho-spiritual practices of, of keeping up healthy boundaries, of discernment, of critical thinking, of meditating and learning how to direct the mind at will and moving in a very intentional way. I think this is the time to use those skills. We've been talking about them here for years. Now we finally get to practice what we preach at the next level. This is the chance to take it to the next level and and to reflect that back and forth to each other, I think. Uh, Kenny, Kenny Rogers died overnight, I think. I got the news this morning. And he's got a great quote that popped up, speaking of social media, on Twitter that I love. It says, you need three things in your life to be happy. Someone to love, something to do, and something to look forward to. So maybe you can kind of plug into that quote when you're feeling at a loss, when you're spinning out. Kenny Rogers said it best. You need three things in your life to be happy. One, someone to love. Who do you love? It could be a, it could be a fur baby. It could definitely be a fur baby. It could just be the whole planet. It could be your grandma. It could be your best buddy. Who do you love? Number two, something to do. Do something. Make something. Organize your sock drawer. (laughs) And number three, something to look forward to. And I'm I'm doing a bonus. I'm going to do a bonus mastermind this month for the dream team because we're always working toward the kick-ass life of our dreams. That's kind of the message here on the podcast, but also I work with just a small group of people on staying really, really focused on the dreams of our heart. And I thought, I'm going to do a bonus mastermind so we can all kind of take what's happening right now, like what is, and let what is be our guide, but still have that really important quality of having something to look forward to. So whether you're on the dream team or not, like what are you looking forward to? It might be time to build something really great or just to tap into the magic of anticipation with your family to put a road trip on the calendar. On Sunday, kids, we're packing up the car and we're taking the scenic route to nowhere. (laughs) We're going to enjoy the scenery from the safety of our own car. Maybe we'll even find a little patch of grass that we can step out onto. Something to look forward to. It could be a road trip. It could be building a sheep fort. 
<laughs> I had a moment this morning. I was just trying to be fun and different. And I, I told the kid, I said, hey, why don't I make us some pancakes? And he was like, no, pancakes are for Sunday. We have a Sunday a Sunday morning pancake tradition. <laughs> and I guess he's just like clinging right now to any semblance of routine that we have. And, and that, that is one routine that we have on Sundays in the morning. We have Sunday pancakes. In the evening, we watch America's Funny Videos. And so Sundays are set. So that's one routine that will not be shaken by the coronavirus. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Uh, did I have any other ideas to share with you? Yes, I did. Yes, I did. I really loved something Esther Hicks posted about momentum and how I think it, this was in the context of thoughts, but I think that you can open this up to include your actions too. Is this thought or is this action that I'm about to engage in or that I currently am engaging to, is it creating momentum toward a solution or is it creating momentum toward a problem? And I think that is just something that's awesome to ask yourself in life in general, but especially during this time. You can think about it in the macro, like am I feeding the social anxiety with this thing that I'm about to post <laughs> or this phone call that I'm about to make or you know, am I, am I feeding the momentum of the problem or Will this actually create momentum toward the solution of it? You can also look at this on the micro, on the micro, like, holy crap, pun intended. We have run out of toilet paper. All right. So what kind of momentum do I want to create from here? What would a solution be? What would a solution be? If we could be solution-oriented in our own lives, that will help us then be solution-oriented for other people. And wouldn't it be amazing if an entire community of us came together and kept focusing relentlessly on creating solutions instead of adding to the momentum of the problem? Yes, I think it very much would be. It very much would be. And then also, I want to say... <laughs> I've got things to say. <laughs> I shared in that, I'll link to the town hall. For those of you who are not on my newsletter list and may have missed it, I'll link to the town hall here too if you want to see some witchy people gathered in a town hall and chit-chatting. Uh, I mentioned during that my book of fear. I've talked about my book of fear here before. It's just a little composition book I keep when I feel anxious, when I feel fear and I don't exactly know what it is, that I'm afraid of specifically, I, I let my fear keep a journal. I give my fear a voice and I just let it say whatever it wants to say. And it usually starts with, I am afraid that blah, 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 blah. And it allows me to see what is going on, what I'm afraid of. And that usually for me brings up a lot of self-compassion, first and foremost, because it's often like the voice of my inner child that's afraid or my inner teenager, or it's something like I'm afraid of other people, like what other people will think or how they will react. And that always brings up compassion for me first. And then secondly, it gets me to, into action because I'm a person who likes to turn the beat around. I'm like, okay, so what am I going to do about this? 
What can I do to actually address this fear instead of just letting it run amok and make decisions for me? Like, this is kind of a queen thing. Like, how do I show this fear who's boss and take care of it at the same time? Like, you don't have to worry about this kid. I got us. I got us. And and I'll often just take one small step in creating momentum toward the solution. And I find that really helpful. And I wanted to repeat that here, but I also think it might be interesting to create a kind of buddy system with a trusted friend where you agree to periodic phone calls where each person gets, you could be like panic partners (laughs) or you each get like, okay, you got five minutes, you got three minutes, whatever it is, you set a timer and the person just gets to go. I'm scared. I'm worried. I'm afraid. I'm panicking about this, 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 this. The other person just says, I hear you. I totally hear you. My turn. Set the timer. So you both do this. It gives you a chance to get it out to say it to another human being, an empathetic human being who has your back, and then you can redirect your focus on addressing those together and be like, okay, so what can we do? How, how, how can we start creating solutions around this? Which of these fears is real? Which of these fears is not? I, this comes up in the interview, actually, with, with Carolyn that you're about to listen to. We talk about Katie... Byron, excuse me, I always say it backwards. Byron Katie's The Work. If you Google The Work, you probably don't even have to put Byron Katie in next, next to it. But if you do, there's a free worksheet that you can print out that talks you through judgments that you may have or fears that you may have. And it starts with, is it true? Is what you're saying true? And like follow-up questions are in the vein of, can you absolutely positively know that this is true? And she really, this very, very simple process, it, it, it helps it helps you back away from the edge of the cliff. It talks you off the ledge so that you can actually just create some space between you and your fear or worry or judgment and get back into your place of power. And as witches, is that not what we are all about? We are all about the personal power, the personal power. That's what so many of our practices are doing. We're talking about mind magic right now on Patreon. And I really want to emphasize this here on the public podcast as well, like the power of your mind. If you have a mind that's run amok, this might be a great time to pick up a mindful practice or a meditation practice, something that starts training that monkey mind to stop flinging poo all over the walls and sit down and behave itself long enough so that you can start creating some positive momentum in your life, some momentum toward the solution. And in case you don't want to do that right now, and you're just looking for some really kick-ass, inspiring entertainment, I am now very pleased to present my interview with Carolyn Elliott to you. We talk about existential kink. We talk a lot about the shadow, shadow desires, having as evidence of wanting, which I think is the central theme to existential kink. It's a really polarizing, challenging idea that helps you dig in super deep with the shadow work, if that's something you're interesting, interested in t- thinking about right now. And we also 
talk about plant medicine. She's a person who, I don't know if she encourages, but she herself explores this kind of work in terms of processing grief, like ayahuasca ceremonies. She's really interested in MDMA therapy for processing grief. And it's great to, I think, right now, again, like during this time, to separate out what is shadow work, what is grief processing, and then what is just managing these socially contagious worries and anxious thoughts that we're passing on to one another. I think there's a distinction that can be made from these three different things. We've got anxiety, socially contagious anxiety, straight up worry, kind of the fear that spins you around in circles and never gets you anywhere but more worried. We've got that, whatever you want to call that. We've got grief processing. We've got shadow work. And yes, we have an interview with Carolyn Elliott. So without any further ado, here she is. Hi, Carolyn. Welcome to Hippie Witch. Hi, Joanna. It's so fun to get to talk with you again. And speaking of fun, I want to set the tone for this interview by sharing with you a meme that you cannot see, but I think I can easily describe that I stumbled upon this morning on Twitter. Is that okay with you? Oh, yes. I think this summarizes your work very nicely. It's a picture of two parrots. One is black. It looks like a Dracula parrot with like, it's all black with red around its beak. And it's coming after a white parrot that is crouched down and looking scared shitless. Mm -hmm. And over the black parrot, it says vampires talking about how they could kill me. And then over the white parrot, it says me secretly turned on. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) So existential kink. I feel like that's a good demonstration of it. And you have a new book called Existential Kink. You've been teaching this online for a long time. So it's very exciting that this is now accessible to so many more people by way of a nice handy paperback that you can tuck into your bag. Yeah, it, totally. I know. I'm, I'm very thrilled about this myself. Yeah, I, I have another meme that I often think of when I think about existential kink. I've seen it around a lot. It's, um, it's sort of like, it's like me in hell and the demon says, I'm going to punish you for your gluttony. And it's like, me, great. I'm a glutton for punishment. <laughs> the demon's like, can I get a manager? <laughs> and I think that sums it up pretty well too. And yeah, it's, it's, the book is out. It's on audible. People can go get it. And if you, you don't, you don't even have to read it. You can just listen to me reading it to you while you drive the car, wash the dishes. So, um, oh, you narrated the e- the ebook or the audiobook? Yeah. It was the trippiest thing. Reading my whole book out loud in over like four days. It's a real mind flip. <laughs> yeah. Wow. That's so cool. You have such a hypnotic, everything about you is hypnotic. I don't oh. know if this is intentional or not. I intended to ask <laughs> about this later, but your voice is very hypnotic. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. My husband was like, I was listening to your audiobook. You sound like a sexy vampire. <laughs> 
<laughs> you kind of do. I guess I'll just ask you. I asked permission for everybody who's going to yell at me for focusing on a woman's look, but the look of you is very hypnotic. And I have long wondered if this is intentional. It has this like silent film star, Theta Bera, Clarabo situation going on. Oh, you got my Clarabo number. Yeah, Clarabo um, has been a, a, like a hero of mine for a long time. Thank you. Yeah, I also have, um, just in my natal chart, I have Venus conjunct, Uranus conjunct, the south node in the eighth house. And um, I have Taurus rising. So Venus you know, the, the, the position of Venus affects how my Taurus rising appears because, of course, Venus rules Taurus. And um, I like to think that Venus conjunct Uranus conjunct the south node is sort of like a, um, a weird, like, ancient sex cult alien leader look. I love that you take such pride in defining your look that way. <laughs> yeah. Thanks. It makes me think so much of glamour magic, but I don't even know if it's intentional. I mean, it just could be your way of being, but the way you look at people kind of almost out from under this, this curly hair that's like thrown up. It's so interesting to me. And you have these big blue eyes. It's like, I feel like you're about to tell me a secret at any second. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Um, I can't deny it. I have done a bit of glamour magic in my time, but, but yeah, I'm also just working with what my mama gave me, you know, Mm -hmm. making the most of it. Yep. Yep. Yeah. It's great. What kind of circling back to what we were saying about those funny memes that Mm -hmm. those could be memes says society has some level of self-awareness around what you're talking about in this book, but I don't think we have the language to speak about it and that that's what you're offering us. The language to not just speak about it, but what do we do with this thing that makes us be attracted to the sexy vampire that wants to kill us? (laughs) Right, right, right. Yeah, I like to think that I'm like popping the collective zit there's this like that's been like under the surface of everybody's face for a long time. And I'm just like coming up to them and I'm, I'm being like, okay, just just hold still, hold us, hold still, hold on. (laughs) Which is the super gross kinky thing that I do to my husband all the time. Well, as much as I can, he like never has zits, but when he does have them, I get super excited and he's like, Oh, you're such a perverted freak. And I'm like, (laughs) So, I mean, the way you're laughing right now, there's such joy and perversity. Like, this is so funny to me. <laughs> it's so funny. I, you wrote a newsletter I saw. I went to go see I Do Not Hang Out on Facebook and lately Instagram even. So mm-hmm. I was thinking, I wasn't sure if you utilize social media. I feel like you're something of a newsletter master. Thank and you. So I went to snoop around and I, I saw... I scrolled through your Facebook. You don't hang out there often, it looks like, which kudos to you. But you posted a newsletter there about Donald Trump. And I was like, oh, girl, what are you doing? Like, And then you're like gleeful that like, I got the most unsubscribers ever. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Thank you. It it truly tickled me. I do. I do enjoy wickedness and perversity. Let's see. I don't know. Where did I get that from? I really like John Waters. Did you ever see the movie Hairspray? Oh, yeah. I love Hairspray. And of course, before he did Hairspray, he did a lot weirder stuff like Desperate Living and 
Yeah. And I read a quote from him once where he was like, all of my movies are about people who take something that society tells them that they should be, you know, ashamed about it and they make it into a great strength. And I think that's, you know, in some ways that's the essence of existential kink too, is we all have these things within us that are these desires that, um, our egos aren't okay with. Usually society is not okay with, um, but they're part of the human wholeness and they can be a source of great strength the minute that we stop trying to um, hide them and repress them. Yeah. Yeah. I think a lot of those shadows, shall we call them, are formed because society does not approve of them. Therefore, our families don't approve of them. <laughs> Therefore, we hide that stuff from ourselves. And then bringing it back out shamelessly is a terrifying prospect because that fear of rejection and abandonment is so real. Oh, yes. Very, very primal. I I always think it's so interesting, you know, humans having spent uh, tens of thousands of years in a tribal context, we, you know, exile, social disapproval is a very primal fear because exile means death. And of course, it's interesting because these days, it doesn't usually. It means that maybe uh, less people talk to you or, you know, you're not as popular on social media or whatever. <laughs> you don't usually have to die because of it. But um, but it's still, it's a very, very deep fear that we have of being disliked. And I think there's enormous power in getting very, very willing to be disliked, uh, being willing to be polarizing. So, yeah kind of circling back to what you said about Donald Trump is you can be a fairly like gross person (laughs) in what you're presenting to the world. And that rejection may happen with like this half of society. And then this half of society loves you for it. It's a yeah, truly talk about polarizing. He's the most polarizing person around. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's true. He's very, very powerful and he has a very strong will. I find that interesting about uh, Donald is his will is very aligned. He is very clear that he wants his name to be on giant buildings all over the place and he wants gold-plated toilets and, you know, he went out and made it happen. Yeah, Uh, it really flies in the face of something that the New Age community has been fairly committed to for a long time about being very positive and loving and putting that out and that will pave the path for you in gold bricks to your success when you can actually look at powerful public figures and see really it's a sense of entitlement and willpower (laughs) and like a sense that I deserve this. I will have it come hell or high water that gets a lot of people the things that I don't know. It's irritating, I think, to a lot of people because we want to believe that life is fair. And if you're a good person, good things will come your way. And that's true to some degree, but also we have examples of people that are like, give me, (laughs) and it works. Precisely. Yeah, I think that's interesting. I think you're right. I think folks get confused about like um, virtuousness and strength of will, and they can go hand in hand, but oftentimes they don't. And actually, a lot of times, right, there's that quote about the best, the worst of us are filled with passionate intensity and the best lack all conviction. Mm-hmm. Um, which I, I do think is a thing. I think oftentimes good-hearted people can just be fatally wishy-washy. 
But yeah, I think at a deep level, though, there can be a connection between, well, spiritual power and um, material wealth, but it's not the only way to get material wealth, certainly. Actually, so I've been thinking about this a lot because I have, um, I'm creating a new membership program called wealth. And actually, I've been reflecting, reflecting on the etymology of the word wealth, which, so the English word um, comes from the old English term, um, welle, and welle means well-being. And that was a term, it, it began to be associated with prosperity because it's hard to have welle, to have well-being, you know, if you're lying destitute in a gutter. Um, but before that, that term welle came from the old German term wheel, so W-E-A-L, wheel, which actually means will. Mm. So this idea of like, if you have a powerful will, you are able to create well-being for yourself, which can include material prosperity. But of course, there's a lot that goes into well-being. So, and you can think about, there's all different kinds of wealth, right? You know, people say health is wealth. If you have all the money in the world, but you're not healthy, you're not going to be enjoying it. Likewise, virtue is a form of wealth. And I don't think Donald Trump, you know, in... I don't think he's a happy man. Like whatever anybody would want to say about his politics for or against, I think it's kind of clear that he is not a happy person. (laughs) So yeah, yeah. And um, so in a sense, I would say, you know, he's not truly wealthy because he's not really enjoying himself and enjoying what he has. So, you know, there's different definitions of that that we could play around with. I think there can be So something that I work with in the membership program is about helping people create a powerful will, you know, which existential kink is all about. It's about uniting our conscious and our unconscious will so that we have that unified sense of, of purpose and direction and we can create powerfully. But usually in order to get to having that aligned will, we have to accept some of these sort of darker, socially unacceptable things within ourselves. I like the subtitle, Unmask Your Shadow and Embrace Your Power, because of the word unmask and the word embrace. You were you were giving us some etymology there. I'm a big word nerd, and I always kind of go to the title of a book, which I know authors don't always have control over. <laughs> but mm-hmm. I think unmask your shadow and embrace your power are saying the same things, you know, from different angles. And it's a reiteration of what you just said about the unconscious and the conscious becoming one. It's about loving your shadow, loving all the parts of you and this existential kink process. Yeah, absolutely. You know, in so what's funny about existential kink is I actually think it's it's um it's mostly about forgiveness and it's about uh surrender and unconditional love, which are some pretty standard virtues, you know, you can hear those preached about in any church. But what I like to think is fun about existential kink is it's a way of actually doing those things. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. Just talking about them. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. You, um, I have a program called Shadow Love, which is about loving the shadow. And I reference Return to Love, that book um, mm-hmm. by Marianne Williamson. Mm-hmm. And I talk a lot about the work. And so I was really excited to see you. You're so different than I am. You present things in such a different way. It's exciting for me to read your book and be like, oh my gosh, 
we're, we're pulling from similar references sometimes with some of the points mm-hmm. and kind of getting to a similar place, but you are so cool and so edgy and so highly educated that it's just a trip. It's just an actual experience reading this book. <laughs> Thank you, Joanna. Thank you. Yeah, I love Marianne Williamson, A Return to Love, A Course in Miracles, all of that stuff. Yeah, it's it's just surprising, I think, to to hear that from somebody that is so rock and roll. I just love it. <laughs> yeah, right. I like to think that Jesus was pretty rock and roll. Oh, for sure. Yes, but I think that's lost somewhere, like culturally. It's, he's been whitewashed. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. People are scared of his witchiness, for sure. Mm-hmm. I think this idea of unmask your shadow is so great because it's not put the shadow in the closet, punch the shadow in the face, deny the shadow. It's like, no, take the mask off and let it, let it be, let it like, see it, see its face. Yes, absolutely. Thank you. It's true. It's, it's, um, what I think is part of what's interesting about the shadow is it's the necessary. Okay. So how do I say this? it's the other side of the ego. So just like the moon, you know, there's two sides of the moon. There's the light side of the moon and the dark side of the moon. Um, Our ego is the same way. So there's the side of our ego that is all about survival and, you know, doing whatever furthers survival, like getting more followers on Instagram, getting more money, looking better, having more friends, all of these things. That's what the ego likes. And um, the ego is usually very concerned with not only getting good stuff, but thinking of itself as good. Like, I'm a good person. I do good things, you know? Um, But fundamentally, as A Course in Miracles explains, as A Return to Love goes into, the ego is a notion of separation. It's an idea that, like, I'm a body and a personality, and I'm somehow separate from the divine totality. I'm, like, my own little thing here. And that you know, necessarily has, creates, um, well, it creates a shadow. So there's, for everything that the ego wants, I have an equally powerful unconscious desire. So for example, I have a conscious desire. I have a bodhisattva vow to liberate all beings from suffering, which means that I simultaneously have a shadowy unconscious desire to keep myself and all beings in deep ignorance and profound suffering. (laughs) And that's, you know, the two are constantly, I can't have one without the other. There's a total simultaneity. Um, Likewise, you know, I love my husband and I just want the absolute best for him. And I just absolutely adore him, which means that I have a shadowy unconscious desire to destroy him and kill him. And you know, I, I, that I passionately hate him. And I think it was Carl Jung who said like the sign of a mature the sign of psychological maturity is being able to love and hate the same person with equal intensity and be okay with it. So I think I'm pretty psychologically mature because I definitely, I totally love and I totally hate my husband. And we'll say that to each other. We'll be like, oh my gosh, I love, hate you so much. (laughs) And, um, And that can be weird for some people to hear because again, the ego likes to think of itself as only good and only wanting good things and liking good things. Um, but we, you know, we are a reflection of, of the totality and the totality of course includes everything. So, um, 
I think it's really interesting. There's a process of, um, you know, in alchemy, they called it making the philosopher's stone. In Jungian psychology, it's called getting in touch with the self, the capital S. Um, in Western esotericism, they call it um, having knowledge and conversation of one's holy guardian angel. And basically, as I understand it, it's this process of um, becoming aware of the opposites within oneself and learning how to inhabit those paradoxes in a way that it actually makes you more sane. Instead of just like, you know, making you crazy, <laughs> you just, you, you get really, really centered with it and you get okay with living in the heart of these paradoxes. Like I remember the day that I realized that I was not a good person. <laughs> um, and, you know, it was a beautiful day. I realized that I was a whole person instead of a good person. So one of the ways that I came to this realization was my whole life, I've thought of myself as not a violent person. I've never gotten into physical fights. I've never been interested in martial arts or guns or anything like that. And I was walking around Boulder, Colorado one day. I think I was actually in Boulder for a kink workshop, funnily enough. And I was walking around and looking at the Tibetan Buddhist stores because there's a lot of that in Boulder. And I was thinking, this is such a peaceful town. You know, it's just like a sleepy little college town, felt really, really safe there. And I started to think about like what conditions created the safety that I felt in walking around Boulder by myself at night. And I was thinking like, well, first, first of all, there were the, um, you know, the American colonists, the settlers who killed the Native Americans who were here first. And uh, there was also mixed up into that a whole bunch of slavery. And now there's the, um, you know, the United States prison industrial system, which imprisons more people than any other country in the world. And we basically have a police state. And all of this violence is creating on my behalf this very easy situation of safety where I don't have to know how to use a gun or defend myself. I can just just walk down the street super and feel utterly protected and fine. And I was like, God oh, damn, I'm like more violent than Attila the Hun. I'm like one of the most violent people to ever live. There is so, so much violence that supports my ostensibly peaceful existence. And I was like, wow. And, and at the same time, obviously I like that. I like feeling safe and like, I don't have to physically fight to defend myself. So it was, it's interesting. It's interesting to sit with that kind of awareness. Your mind is so sexy. <laughs> there's a book, there's a book that I just finished that I'm so on fire about. It's fiction. It's CL Polk's book, Witch Mark. Ooh. And it, it really demonstrates what you're talking about, about this privileged, elegant, upper class who gets to enjoy all of that at a price. I will, I will, I will spare any future readers spoilers, but basically what you just said, but in fiction, I think fiction sometimes can present these ideas in a more palatable way that we can, we can absorb rather than having to look at ourselves straight in the mirror. <laughs> certainly, certainly. So yeah. Um, and then, I mean, if there are questions that are raised by that and perhaps somebody else might have a similar realization and I don't know, become a radical political activist or become, I don't know, more directly concerned with uh, social justice matters. I do, I do think about social justice matters, but I guess 
I don't know, I've gotten to a place where I don't think anything changes unless consciousness changes. So I guess I'm more focused on consciousness than um, conventional activism. But yeah. kind of activism? I think it is, Joanna. I think it is. Because can I tell you my little theory about it? Definitely do. So when I think about like massive change happening in society, it seems... And so one of the examples I have is during the Enlightenment in the 1700s when uh, for a long time, you know, church and state were just completely together. And, you know, one day people seem to think like, hey, maybe we could actually have a government that's separate from religion and we could just let people have whatever religion they want to have. Maybe that would be cool. Um, that, that massive change came to be from basically like a few dozen people having a major alteration in their in the way that they thought about themselves and the way that they thought about the world and that eventually fanned out to other people and to the organization of society and and to what gets considered normal like i would say in the united states today most people consider it pretty normal that there should be a separation between uh government and religion and there's not a, like a state required religion Mm-hmm. That was a super radical idea when it started. It was had never been done before for thousands of years. So likewise, I think that it's possible to have major shifts and evolutions in the way that everything is organized um, through the spreading of powerful ideas. So that is what I try to focus on. Mm-hmm. Yes. I think critical thinking should be taught in schools again. Apparently it was at some point, but we don't. Yeah. <laughs> I, will, I will occasionally go on a soapbox about propaganda because I just feel like if you get people thinking about propaganda and what it is and how it works, kind of Byron Katie's work comes into play where you can yeah. look at your social media feed and be like, is this true? How do I know this is true? (laughs) You know, who's trying to whip me up into a state right now? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. For real. Yeah. Byron Katie is such a genius with that. Um, exactly. It's all story. And this is something that I think is very interesting because I think it's very close to the heart of magic, like meaning, magic, consciousness, language, um, money are all sort of a nexus of things. And I've been thinking a lot about this in part because my wealth membership is all about the hermetic arts. So, you know, the Greek god Hermes was a god of all of those things like language, money, trade, writing, magic, and consciousness itself. And so then like we see it all the time. You know, people are, I mean, social media is a giant spellcasting mechanism. It's like people are competing to cast spells that can, uh, you know, get the most attention. And then they try to convert that attention into money. Um, And, you know, some people are better at it than others. And I do think it's a question of... um, well, I mean, there's many questions tied into this, but something that I think about as a leader and as somebody who makes money through the internet and social media is what quality of story am I putting out? You know, what is the quality of the spell that I'm casting here? And do I feel, do I feel awesome about weaving this net of meaning that then, um, you know, people participate in and, (laughs) 
Yeah. 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 So mm -hmm. I will say a lot of people that I work with, either coaching clients or just some friends or people that have taken my courses, they adore you. And two, but two things come up. Life-changing. Mm -hmm. Life-changing is a thing that comes up a lot, particularly around existential kink, mm -hmm. but also scary. I, I think one person literally said she scares the shit out of me, and she said it in the most admiring way. <laughs> and I think it's because of this bold presentation that you have, mm -hmm. and beneath that, it's what you're asking us to do. Because <laughs> this is like, these people are your fans. Like they are your true fans. They have bought all your programs and they're like, and she's so scary. I love her. <laughs> oh, thank you, Joanna. Thank you for that reflection. Yeah. I've heard that a little bit more recently. I guess sometimes they're too scared to tell me that they're scared of me. So <laughs> yeah. yeah, but I, I think more probably they're scared of what you're asking them to do. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, it's understandable because what, uh, what I am talking about is, you know, it's ego death and, you know, like Salvador Dali said, I don't do drugs. I am drugs. I love that. Um, yeah. And you know, well, uh, I do do medicine and I am medicine. So, <laughs> yeah. you know, that really, I was very curious about that. And I was relieved that it's like literally in the book you're talking about, well, first of all, this is going to be a long windy road here to get to my point, but I do share your opinion about shadow work, existential kink being better at first, at least for dealing with current frustrating patterns rather than deeply traumatic mm -hmm. memories. And, but then you go on to say, you know, like grieving is a whole other thing that mm -hmm. is really important. And then you mention ayahuasca ceremonies and MDMA therapy sessions for processing grief. And I was like, okay, there it is. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think obviously I think existential kink is an amazing tool. Just like I think the work of Byron Katie is an amazing tool that, yeah. Uh, profoundly, both of them profoundly changed my life, but I still had, and, you know, and at times I come up against, you know, these nexuses of deep things within me that are either, you know, what are they? Childhood things, karmic things, probably both. And yeah, I think that there's, um, that plant medicines and theogenic medicines are really, really amazing for working with those things in a way that meditation and talk therapy can't necessarily get to. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, you can talk yourself in circles for a very long time. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> not that there's not a value to, I have had valuable therapy, talk therapy mm -hmm. experiences, but what have you found personally, like through ayahuasca or MDMA, do, like, do you have any interesting tales to tell or insights just specifically from those experiences? Oh, wow. Absolutely. So, um, well, first of all, I've only had MDMA once in my life and it was not in a uh, controlled therapeutic setting. Let's just say that <laughs> um, it was when I was 17 and, and, uh, you know, running with a fast crowd. Um, but it was a very deep experience for me. And it was the first time in my life that I felt what it was like to be free from fear. And I remember afterwards when I came down, I just kept thinking like, hot damn, there has to be some way to live my life in that expanded state. Mm 
Mm. Because most of the time I felt very contracted, very fearful, anxious, depressed, all of that stuff. And I was like, I know I can't just pop MDMA forever and that that's not the solution, but I really feel like it's shown me something. It's shown me like a a very heart-centered, blissful way of being in the world. And I'm interested in getting back there. And that's actually when I started getting really into like A Course in Miracles and Eckhart Tolle and uh, all of that fun metaphysical stuff was when I had that glimpse with MDMA. So I am excited about it, um, you know, becoming legalized for use in a therapeutic context because I can see how it would be quite helpful in generating, you know, empathy for oneself and everything like that. And then ayahuasca, oh boy, God, I love ayahuasca. So, so grateful to her. Um, The purge. The purge is very powerful. (laughs) Very, very powerful. Yes. And she purges, you know, um, not just physically, but emotionally, spiritually clogged stuff that's stuck in there. I think one of the deep things with ayahuasca, you know, they call it the vine of the dead, the vine of the soul. And I think it does take you into the underworld, which you find out uh, is a pretty intense place. And uh, let's see, what do I have to say about the underworld? Well, everybody should go. It's fantastic. Highly recommend. Um, definitely have a fantastic shaman that you trust a whole lot. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And and it helps. What what the? I think the thing that ayahuasca did for me that is absolutely endlessly priceless that I'm forever grateful for um, is it helped me to no longer fear death. So I, even though I was, I would have considered myself a spiritual person before I took ayahuasca, I really didn't have a very concrete idea of what life after death might be like. I think I was just sort of of the school of thought of like, well, you die and then it's over, right? You're just like, it's like being in deep sleep forever. You're just gone. I still actually think that it's kind of like being in sleep, but I think it's like dreaming, Um, I think, you know, like this life is a kind of bardo and there's a bardo between this life and and other lives. That's probably my guess is like dreaming, like a DMT sort of experience like you have with ayahuasca. Um, And that uh, the dream, you know, is responsive to you and it's responsive to your intentions and your prayers and your focus. Um, And that the ultimate way to have it be a beautiful dream is to be in a position of deep humility and surrender with it, Um, deep gratitude. Uh, I've been through, I've had nights on ayahuasca where I was like helplessly turning into all sorts of different animals who were just giving birth in their burrows underground. I was like a mole and then I was a rat and then I was a rabbit and then I was a cricket. And I was just like sort of having this experience of um, endless birth. And it, well, I mean, there's very, very, there's, yeah, <laughs> I see, I started getting tongue tied talking about it because uh, it was a deep lesson t- for me about motherhood and about Gaia and what Gaia is perpetually experiencing. She's perpetually giving birth and she's perpetually experiencing her children die always simultaneously, constantly. And uh, so I have great reverence and awe for um, Gaia. 
Those are similar thoughts I've had around Saturn. I work with Saturn a lot. Oh, oh, that's not, yes. Very, very, very close to Saturn. Yeah, like eating your children. Time, time eats her children. Yes, yes, she does. Yes, she does. (laughs) Yes, I think about Saturn a lot too. So you're making me think especially about the tree of life and um, Bina on the tree of life is Saturn. And also associated with Babylon, you know, like the whole, uh, the whore of abomination or the mother of abominations. Um, the, the, so Babylon is an archetype of existential kink for me because she gets off on everything. Are you familiar with the whole Aleister Crowley mythos? What do you mean the mythos? Well, I guess specifically he had this thing about, um, about Babylon as a goddess and if you're not familiar, you, I, I think you would love the book. It's called The Red Goddess by Peter Gray, and it's all about Babylon. And it's, you know, it's Babylon from the Book of Revelations, St. John of Patmos talked about. And he pretty much was having a vision of uh, Isis slash Ishtar. And John of Patmos in the Bible didn't have much approval for her, but <laughs> she's, she's the divine mother, and she's also a divine whore, and she also eats everybody. And she's associated with Saturn and, and um, uh, on the Kabbalistic tree of life in the third sphere of Bina. Cool. And that's all in the red guy. Is that a Scarlet imprint book? I feel like it is a Scarlet imprint book. I don't think he goes into talking. He does talk about the Bina association. I think so. Yeah. Cause Crowley did. And he also talks about John D encountered Babylon when John D was doing magic with the Enochian invocations of the angels and also Jack Parsons. Are you familiar with the Jack Parsons? All those people, yes. And I'm thinking about all these people and I'm thinking about your work and I'm thinking about how it could have helped some of those people. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Because their shadows at some point, they were very powerful, very interesting, highly intelligent magicians, in my opinion. And, but maybe, well, it depends on who you're talking about, but I think there were some mental health issues, but then some shadow issues run amok, like almost getting consumed by them. And I, how exciting that we live in a time now where we have a Carolyn Elliott giving us this awesome language to talk about these things in a constructive, healthy way. So we're not consumed by them. Yeah, the beautiful points, Joanna. And I, I do think you're right. I think they were consumed and they encountered some unhappy fates. And what's interesting to me is they were having experiences of Babylon as like an external entity that they were in dialogue with. And to pat myself on the back for a minute, I guess I'll just say that a little bit of my secret to sanity and success over here is that I've done my best and, and continue to do my best to actually just live from that consciousness of Babylon of getting off on everything mm. instead of her being an external deity that I'm appealing to. I just try to uh, inhabit her awareness, which is sort of like um, a tantric, you know, Vajrayana emanating as the Buddha kind of thing. You are Babylon. I try. I do try. <laughs> I don't know. Always- um, I said I was, I went to go lurk on your social media. And there's one thing I wrote down that I liked. You wrote your lower self is your higher self. Yes. Thank you. Oh, yes. 
Am I jumping around too much? All those seems in my mind to just flow in a wonderful way. <laughs> I hope well, I'm not I think just... it's totally connected. Totally right? connected. I mean, I I feel like I could. Man, I'm so excited. It's beautiful to be talking with you. Um, Saturn. I guess I just felt like maybe. Well, we can talk about. Oh man. Okay. <laughs> I guess I just wanted to say like yeah, Saturn as time eating eating his own children eating her own children, however we might want to imagine Saturn. You know, I guess what I want to put out there is that there is a way in which existential kink is, can be this very deep kind of Saturn work. I think Saturn is like the, one of the ways to imagine Saturn is it's the personal shadow, like the personal antagonist, the guardian on the threshold, the adversary, you know, Saturn, Satan kind of thing. Yeah. What's really, really interesting is just for putting this out there for those listening is that if you get well-practiced in existential kink, it starts to take you a bit beyond the bounds of the personal shadow and a bit beyond Saturn. And you start to have more of what I would call genuine transcendent experiences and that they are grounded in a very uh, deep incarnational presence. Also, they're not like premature transcendent experiences. So just uh, putting that out there. And yeah, so your lower self is your higher self. Um, this, I, I coined that little phrase because I would see a lot of people talking about, you know, the higher self and they seem to be talking about it. Like it was always this, um, again, transcendent being that was always perfectly benevolent and, um, you know, would, would give them goodies somehow, or would, uh, you know, lead them in the one true way of light, I guess. And sure, uh, it does that. (laughs) (laughs) And it's also in my experience, um, very, very trickstery. And I think that, so here's, here's one example, one way I like to tie it together. I spent a lot of time in 12-step programs because I was addicted to heroin as a teenager, so I needed a lot of help to get through that. And in 12-step programs, the way they talk about surrender uh, is genius. They have three steps that help you, you know, stop whatever messed up shit you're doing. And the first, well, they have 12 of them, but the first three... <laughs> There you go. Um, Number one, we admitted that we were powerless over our addiction and our lives had become unmanageable. Uh, So that's a deep admission of, you know, very, very humbling thing to admit. Uh, Number two, we came to believe that a higher power could restore us to sanity. Um, Number three, we turned our will and our lives over to this higher power as we understood it. Okay, so sometimes... um, so usually in the conversation in the 12-step groups, people seem to make a very strong distinction between like, okay, there's this dark force called your addiction on one hand, and it's always doing push-ups, and it's ready to fuck you up if you, you know, relapse. And then on the other hand, there's this beautiful, kind, higher power that is just looking out for you and taking care of you like a, a kind parent. Okay. But then sometimes I would hear people say stuff like, I am so, so grateful for my addiction. You know, even though it was totally messed up and I I hurt myself and a lot of people, if it hadn't been for my addiction, I never would have found the 12 steps and I never would have found a relationship with my higher power. In Pittsburgh, they call it a higher power. Like I never would have had a higher power. Um, And, uh, you know, I would 
um, I wouldn't have um, so much connection and community in my life as I do here in the meetings. So I would hear that a lot. And one day it dawned on me, they're the same power, the addiction and the higher power that seems to miraculously create positive synchronicities once you surrender and give up the drug and get connected to community. Um, they're the same thing. It's just the ego's relation to it changes. So, and this is very connected to Jungian psychology. And in fact, interestingly, the 12 steps grew out of dialogue with Carl Jung. Bill W. was writing to Carl Jung. And that's what helped him formulate the 12 steps, which I just think is so fascinating. Anyways, the, because Jung was all about like, look, we all have these egos but our egos are not the whole of who we are. They masquerade as the whole of who we are. But the whole of who we are is um, is a reflection of the totality. It, it contains everything. It's like a fractal of God. So the trick is humbling the ego so the ego starts to realize that it's not actually in charge of the show. So the interesting thing with drug addiction, for example, is as long as you're telling yourself like, oh, I'm in control, I can have another one, it's not a big deal, I can stop whenever I want, you, you're almost compelled to keep going, to you know, keep chasing that high. And as soon as you say to yourself, like, wow, I am really not in control here. I am being completely run by something that is much, much more powerful than me. I'm basically possessed and I have no choice over my actions. That's extremely humbling. Mm -hmm. And when you get to that humble place, uh, then suddenly the unconscious force that had been previously driving you to destroy your life and your health and everything suddenly becomes benevolent. And it's, uh, it needed your humility in order for it to become benevolent. Like without the humility, it just has to keep like hammering you to get your attention basically. Mm-hmm. So anyways, that's one way of thinking about it. Um, so yeah, I think, I really think this, that like addictions, like stupid things that we do, compulsive things that we do, in addition to our base, basic animal, natural human desires, um, are all part of what guides us in these, to the grander realization of who we are. And there's no way to, I, I well, I guess maybe there could be a way, but whatever it is, it's um, <laughs> what I'm trying to say is attempting to get rid of the of the lower base animalistic things about ourselves doesn't it's not the path to wholeness and it's not I don't think it's actually a desirable means of spiritual growth. Um, I'm really into the whole alchemical thing of reconciling the opposites like masculine feminine good and evil pleasure and pain. Um, the more I get in touch with both of those things in myself and the more that I see them in total balance in the world, the, well, I guess I would say like the happier I am. And and the, I think the more beauty I'm able to create for myself and for other people, which I actually think, so I, (laughs) I came at that through, uh, through Western esotericism and alchemy, but I actually think that's the same thing that's at the heart of Buddhism, which is this understanding of interdependence. So 
Uh, I've been I've been going on for a little while now. I could I could say more, but let me pass the ball to you. I'm listening. I'm listening. You know, okay. you know, what <laughs> has been floating around in my mind for a while is actually not what you're talking about is it's how you talk. I was thinking like, okay, I know what, I know what your superpower is. It's a combination of things because you, you because you often say, Oh, it dawned on me or I noticed, or I thought, or it occurred to me. I think you're just deep, deep, deeply curious and about, about yourself and observant. And then that's paired with this, amazing ability to then retain that whatever you learn following the curiosity breadcrumbs and communicate it to other people. But I really love curiosity in people. I think it's one of the greatest qualities and it's especially interesting when you turn it around on yourself. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. You know what? I read something once Ralph Waldo Emerson in an essay, I don't know if it was the Oversoul or Self-Reliance, but one of those Emerson essays, he said something like, if you find something that's absolutely true within your own heart, you can be certain that it will be absolutely true for everybody else in the world. Mm-hmm. And I've just sort of run with that. <laughs> you know what I think is great too? You're like overeducated. I mean, like so educated, you can bring together a lot of different things into one coherent presentation that I think could be in other hands, very intimidating, you know, for someone's like, wait a minute, I don't know the Kabbalah. What are we talking about? But what you do is you often frame it in personal experience and you're fairly shameless in sharing your own history and past and how you came to these conclusions you use story and so it's accessible to to everyone oh thank you joanna such kind reflections yeah i i like to do that (laughs) i like to mix everything together it's true Mm -hmm. it's fun it's fun i got some shit years and years and years ago this is before i created the shadow love program there was like one module of a program i did and that involved shadow work and i was on youtube being like shadow work is fun uh and (laughs) i got some interesting messages about that because i have a very light bubbly personality Mm -hmm. people can underestimate me sometimes and i Mm -hmm. think that me saying that shadow work is fun <laughs> combined with that irritated a couple of people. And the message I got back was like, how dare you say this? It's so irresponsible. But in my experience, it is because I, I just can't think of anything more fun than like a really juicy, even if it's painful insight. I just, I'm a curious person and I love like uncovering something and being like, Oh my God, look at it. It's disgusting. <laughs> right. right. It hurts so good. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, I know what you mean. Um, that is so fun. Well, well, thank you. So can I tell, I'll tell a little fun story about interdependence. How about that? Sure. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So the, I think this was the essential insight of the Buddha was that, um, all phenomenon are inextricably interrelated. And one way to express that is, uh, in Tibetan Buddhism, they say that everything, all apparent reality is the interplay of, um, emptiness and compassion. So like you realize that everything is empty, meaning it's fluid. It's all like a dream, you know, which of course in miracles talks about too. Um, 
And, you know, at the same time, you maintain compassion for it. You don't like, you don't get all nihilistic with it because it, it is all you. So you might as well be present with it and be compassionate with it. And it's taken me a long time to even begin to grok what that means. And I think I've, I've begun to grok what it means. And one of the ways that I think about it is that, um, so this is an idea that's also in Aleister Crowley's Book of Thoth. I mean, it's an idea that's in Western esotericism and in mysticism in general, but that's one of the places I encountered it. The Book of Thoth, it's a tarot deck. And instead of the Justice tarot card, he has a card called Adjustment. And if you look at Adjustment, it's, um, it's this feminine figure and she's balancing these geometric things all very neatly. And in his description of the card, he talks about how the universe is in perfect balance at all times. There's always basically like an, an equal amount of goodness and evil feminine and masculine uh, activity and passivity perpetually. And from where we're sitting at any individual place, it may look like, oh no, everything's fucked up or, oh no, everything's great. But, you know, from the grand perspective, the absolute perspective, it's all totally balanced. When I started to ponder this, and what it connected to in my mind was when I was in my 20s, I went to India, and I remember I was walking around Kolkata, and I saw in every bookstore, there were so many bookstores, and every bookstore prominently featured Mein Kampf in the window. (laughs) So Hitler's autobiography, prominently featured. And I said to my friend, I was like, what is up with this? Uh, Why are people so into Mein Kampf? And he was like, well, Hitler's kind of a hero here. And I was like, what? What are you on? What? And he was like, yeah, well, you know, so um, during World War II, uh, India was being oppressed by the British, they had been for a while, you know, the British were basically enforcing labor and taking all the profits and, you know, doing their whole colonial thing. And so Hitler went to war with England, Britain, and really weakened their forces. And Gandhi was, uh, you know, doing his nonviolent protests. Uh, and Britain relented. Like, they couldn't deal with Gandhi and Hitler at the same time. Uh, it was, like, too much. They just gave up. But apparently, one of the thoughts in, amongst some Indian folk is that if Hitler had not been fighting with the British, the British just would have kept on doing what they were doing. They would have just run over Gandhi and his people and just kept doing their thing. And so they see Hitler as a kind of uh, liberator who saved people from oppression. And of course, we all know that Hitler did awful, awful things with, um, you know, camps and killing Jewish people and Romanian people, LGBTQ people, all of that that Hitler did. But the British were also doing terrible, terrible things in India that gets talked about much less in, in the United States, at least. So, you know, what... How so? So, but usually everybody talks about Gandhi. You know, Gandhi is a wonderful, venerated figure. Hitler is a highly frowned upon figure. Um, but in some ways, their their success was intertwined. And 
and lack of success too. And also Great Britain is usually at least in the United States, again, kind of idealized or venerated, you know, like I love the Great British Baking Show, for example. My mother likes to watch the royal weddings and stuff like that. Is Great Britain really uh, (laughs) in all of their imperialism? Are they actually much more innocent than Nazi Germany was? Mm -hmm. I don't know. But anyways, it got a little bit muddled there. But what I'm trying to say... (laughs) (laughs) You're you're perfectly demonstrating what I've been trying to hint at the whole time. Like you're, you want to show us this stuff. These are the uncomfortable things that we don't want to think about, but then you say it and it makes so much sense. Thank you. I think it does make sense. And here's what I think also makes sense. And this is what I started to grok that really blew my mind and has had me feeling pretty in love with the world lately as, as, as troubled as the world can be, which is, because everything is absolutely interdependent, nothing can exist without everything else that has ever existed or will ever exist. So I can look at Donald Trump or I can look at Hitler and I could be like, oh, you disgusting, horrible person. You know, oh, I just, I wish that you didn't exist. I wish that you were just removed from everything. And then I look at my beautiful, perfect daughter, and she's like eight months old. She's so adorable. She's the joy of my life. Her existence is inextricably entwined with the existence of Donald Trump, with the existence of Hitler, with the existence of all the serial murderers and all the war that's ever been. She doesn't exist without all of that also existing, too. And... So can I ever say, oh, I wish, <laughs> I wish that something didn't exist? No, I can't say that because it, what exists has includes such, such beauty. And the beauty is in the midst of all the pain and all the ugliness, and they're just so, so linked. And I think what the common human delusion is that the Buddha and Jesus and other folks have tried to point out is the mind tends to think that you can somehow separate out a portion of reality and have this nice, cute baby and this beautiful garden and this wonderful something without having the whole rest of the the opera of uh, suffering. And I guess it just finally landed to me that like, no, actually you can't. That's a delusion. It's a package deal. And once I realized that my heart really expanded and I just, I felt so much love for um, Donald Trump and Hitler and all of these very evil, terrible things um, suddenly struck me as things that it's, and including terrible things in my own life. Like I was molested. I was raped when I was a teenager and, um, I'm no longer, and I had to go through tons of anger and grief and therapy for that. So I'm not saying that's not important. And I, I don't, I hope that everybody gets that who needs that. But, uh, I did come to a place where I am infinitely grateful that that happened because that evil is part of all of the beauty and all of the joy that I experience and none of the beauty and the joy um, exists without all of that evil also existing. Mm-hmm. And I, I understand you conceptually. Yeah. <laughs> I know it's very yeah. weird. It's, I mean, it's just 
And to get into that place and really like live there, I am not there for sure. I hear what you're saying. And I, and I, but, and I have respect that you, (laughs) I can live here. This is actually how we got existential kink. If I'm remembering correctly from the book is you having thoughts about God being kinky, like look at what he made and what he's, or he, she is letting happen. Like on some level, God must get off on this. Yeah, exactly. And I'm also obsessed with, um, you know, I really took it to heart. Like, what would Jesus do? Like, how do I make myself divine? So I figured like, well, if I want to be closer to divinity, I need to learn how to get off on it too. Mm-hmm. I think we are divine. I think oh, we're yeah. it's more of just realizing what we are. <laughs> mm-hmm. Exactly. So that's the thing, I guess, like that's, that's part of, of what I'm, um, preaching with existential kink is I think it's a commonplace in spiritual circles to say like, Oh yes, God is within all of us. We are all divine. But then when an unexpected bill comes and it's like, I don't know how I'm going to pay this (laughs) or, um, you know, when we get into a fight with our partner and we're feeling misunderstood, these feelings of being like, um, I guess I would say put upon wronged, like hurt by the world I guess I just got very curious about that. And if if I'm so divine, why do I feel so put upon all the time? Mm -hmm. And so existential kink is a way of working with those feelings of being very put upon um, and finding the very visceral, tangible divinity within them. And thank you, Joanna, for listening to my weird thing about interdependence. I know it is quite strange and I'm, I'm just sort of at the, the entrance of it myself. Uh, Awesome. Are you kidding? I'm so excited that it happened on the Hippie Witch podcast. I feel honored. I feel honored. I also want to make sure that everybody runs out and gets a copy of Existential King because it's very, very good. And that they have a URL for how to find you if they're on the go. I'm going to link to these things, but sometimes people are driving. And so what? where can we send them that they can remember easily? <laughs> yes. Great. So uh, com slash free. That's so it's my name, Carolyn Grace Elliott, and Elliot has two L's and two T's slash free. And that will take you to a page where you can enter your email address and get the first three chapters of my book for free. And those three chapters teach you everything that you need to know about existential kink. And then you get some emails and some videos from me that help lead you through it. And then you also get announcements about uh, when my programs open for admission. Nice. Well, I have, I have one more question before I can let you go. And that is, can you share with us one of many tips I'm sure you have, but one tip for creating the kick-ass life of your dreams? Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Uh, one tip. Okay. So I guess my one tip is to identify something in your life that you don't like and then get disgustingly, embarrassingly, like fucked upidly on your knees in worshipful kinkful <laughs> worshipful kinky <laughs> gratitude and joy about it just like you just imagine that you are the subbiest sub on the planet and um and just bow down on your knees to to your dom who is this thing in your life that you don't like and just be so so grateful for it just like disgustingly like pathetically grateful and see what happens 
You know, that reminds me, I interviewed you a million years ago. I think when I still just did my interviews on video <laughs> and, and you said something I've heard you say, and it's in the book um, many times, having is evidence of wanting. It's, it was like a very shocking sentence that I have chewed on and spoken about and thought about <laughs> so much. And I think what you're saying, like, I think maybe that sentence is the first step, like before we can worship I think we just have to acknowledge, like, <laughs> I must want this thing because it's here. Yeah, yeah. So that's, thank you for bringing that up. That's, um, that's the first axiom of the existential kink philosophy. And it's wildly offensive. It's really... It is. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it's interesting. I think sometimes when people first hear that, they're like, oh my God, that's so victim blaming. How could you say that, that people want whatever is in their life? Clearly they, they don't want, you know, to be victimized in these horrible ways. And I'm like, yeah, yeah. And also um, it's not victim blaming. The thing about it is it's far, far worse than victim blaming. It is no one blaming. It's um, no blame for victims, no blame for perpetrators, because we've all been both thousands and thousands of times. And having as evidence of wanting is about recognizing the soul's desire for the full spectrum experience of duality and about slowly coming to practice having an embodied inhabiting of the soul's perspective more than the ego's perspective. So yeah, so having as evidence of wanting um, and, and also recognizing that some things we create with our collective wanting, our collective shadowy desires. Mm. So for example, maybe I don't have a personal shadowy desire for sexist prejudice to exist or sexual assault to exist or racism to exist or any of those things. Maybe that's not in my personal shadow. It's definitely in the collective shadow. It's definitely part of, you know, what we are collectively generating. And where is the collective? Well, the entire collective is in me. It's in all of us as individuals. It's nowhere else. So, you know, the hermetic principle of as above, so below, as within, so without, I take that very seriously. And so even if um, I don't have a personal unconscious desire to experience horrible things, some the collective does. The collective is fascinated with master and slave dynamics. Oh boy, you know, and, and our society really reflects that. We have a handful of families, a handful of people at the top who have what, like, 90% of the wealth, 99% of it, <laughs> you know, and then there's the rest of us that shares the rest. And it's, it's a very intense master slave dynamic. The collective is really, really into that. So even if I'm not personally into that, the only place I can work on it is within myself because the collective is within me. And yes, I can protest and I can go in marches and I can vote and I can, you know, people can do all those other things. Heck, you know, sometimes people have revolutions and, and that does something for a while, I guess. But the thing is, (laughs) is that human nature is very repetitive and we create these tyrannical situations again and again in different guises. So for me, the, the outward action I think is, is less effective than the consciousness, emotional integration action that might actually move things forward in a lasting way. 
Carolyn Elliott, the spiritual activist. <laughs> yes. I feel like I need to hand out like psilocybin favors to everybody before they listen to this show. (laughs) (laughs) Or maybe just a nice guided meditation. Take a few deep breaths and and listen. Try not to judge. Just listen. Take it in. Because I really hope people get what you're saying here. Thank you so much. This was mind-blowingly wonderful. Oh, yay, Joanna. Thank you. Such a pleasure. So how was that for you, my friends? Very thought-provoking, no? (laughs) A little bit wild. Boundary-pushing. That's why I was so excited to have Carolyn on the show. I thought you all might enjoy that. It's a lot to take in. It's a lot to process. (laughs) I also rambled a lot in the beginning. I've just kind of been letting loose with the rambles because in the past, when I asked you to give me feedback on that, The only feedback I got was, we love the rambles, ramble away, ramble for whole episodes. But if it's bothering you, you should let me know that too, because I just took that as license to just go, (laughs) let it flow. And I will say I refrained this time from the macho singing that was going to happen in honor of Kenny Rogers passing away this morning because my, I grew up in Bakersfield, California, which is country-ish, the home of Buck Owens. You might know the song, The Streets of Bakersfield. There's a song, oh, what is the name of it? The Girl with the Faraway Eyes that the Rolling Stones sang in a country twang, which is really funny to hear the Rolling Stones, to hear Mick Jagger singing with a country twang about driving around on the streets of Bakersfield. (laughs) So we had a huge chip on our shoulder in the era of Reagan everything, Valley Girl this and that, greed is good. We felt like sensitive and defensive about this and ashamed of it. Speaking of shadows, we were ashamed of our our country heritage and wanted nothing to do with country music even as Kenny Rogers and Dolly Parton were having a moment on the radio. And those two, we actually allowed in with some humor. We thought Dolly was hilarious because her big boobies, you know, little kid. We were little kids. Let me emphasize the little kids. Lots of Dolly Parton booby jokes. Come to find out she's a genius and an icon and such an important person in the world of music. We didn't know that when we were little kids. And these two made it through. And so our favorite, they made it through the shame force field somehow to penetrate our our little minds with their music. And so every Christmas, we would listen to Kenny Rogers' Christmas. It was a big deal. We know all the songs. And then, of course, there was like Islands in the Stream and Lucille. Oh, my gosh. I could, the gambler, the gambler, you got to know when to hold them. Know when to fold them, know when to walk away, know when to run. See, I could do that. I could have done that before the interview with Carolyn Elliott, but I refrained. I reined it in as much as I could. That was the least silly ramble I could offer you. I wanted to be useful and helpful, 
It probably threw you off a little bit in the beginning when I was like, Happy New Year! I don't know if I got around to explaining why I did that soon enough. (laughs) I am seeing this 12-week year that I am starting Sunday morning, tomorrow morning, as my own little miniature happy new year. That's the fun of doing a 12-week year. Besides getting a bunch of shit done and feeling really good about it, you get a happy new year every 12 weeks. It's pretty cool. It's pretty cool. And I just decided to grant myself that do-over right now for the spring equinox, a new season. We're entering into this strange period of the unknown. We don't know how long it's going to last, what the experience is going to be like. We have to create our own new normal to exist in this time, new routines. And it just felt right to me to have a fresh start so that I didn't feel willy-nilly about it and get sucked into bad habits or some weird Twitter addiction or living in the same sweatpants all week long and not washing my hair. Like I was like, I need to take control of this situation. I need to give it a framework. I need to give it a name. I need to get excited about it. Because guess what? This is my life. This is your life too. This day is your life. This self-quarantining lockdown thing, this is your life. These are your memories. Maybe you want to journal about what's going on now. So when you are a super old man or a super old lady, you can look back through and remember the great toilet paper apocalypse of 2020. Hopefully, we'll all make it through this with our friends and family unscathed. And I am sending tons and tons of love, positive vibes your way. Do all the things that you know that you're supposed to do. Stay in as much as possible You know, keep the distance that they tell you to keep right now. It's six feet away from other people. Wash your hands. You know, be smart. Do what what you need to do to take care of yourself in this 3D reality. And then lean on all your favorite witchy shit to get you through in a spiritual sense. Until we meet again, much love to you. Peace.